Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. read from Genesis um, chapter 4 this morning. Let me just say something else. My goodness, uh, the last three weeks as we've got into Genesis, Adam and Brandon's preaching has just been uh, fantastic. Uh, These guys, I remember five or six years ago, people used to come up to me when I hadn't preached in a while, and they'd say, when are you going to preach again? I miss those days. I I haven't heard that. (laughs) Anytime. Those guys are terrific. It'd be, it'd be, I'd be robbing you if they weren't given the chances they're given. And listen, Michael Hart and Michael Puckett can preach too. So God has been good to Seven Rivers Church. My goodness, um, nourishes my soul to hear these guys um, preach the word of God. So the Bible, what's the Bible? The Bible is a history book. The Bible has a story um, to tell, right? It's not a comprehensive history book. The Bible doesn't talk about every epic, every era, every ruler, every pandemic, you know, every um, philosopher that came from anywhere in the world. Um, no, I mean, China's not mentioned in the Bible. We don't know anything about Peru from the Bible, right? Uh, Scandinavia, we don't learn from in the Bible. Um, the Bible's not a comprehensive history of all things for all time, What the Bible is, is the history of redemption. It's the history of redemption. God made the world, man broke the world. God entered entered the world to redeem what was broken. And we hear that play out over the course of history, and we hear that play in two families. Two families, two lines of people are created. Right from the very beginning, we're gonna read about it in Genesis chapter four. And one line is, uh, is the line that says we want autonomy. They follow in the way of Adam and Eve, right? Autonomy. We'll do life without God. And the other line says we need God at the center of our lives. Uh, there would be no life without God. You got it? That's where we're going. The history of redemption. So stand. I'm going to read. If you're uh, able, stand. And I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 4. An amazing, listen, this is an amazing account. I mean, what a gripping story. Um, and it even starts with a murder, harrowing. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So it's a, a way the Bible expresses the intimacy of marriage. Cain is born. Um, Eve, you remember Genesis chapter 3, there's the curse of God as man has rebelled against God. The curse falls on um, Satan and uh, the serpent. We are told that, uh, that you will attack the seed of the woman. You will wound, um, uh, you will strike her on the heel, but she will crush your head, right? And so Eve rejoices because here now is the son she believes will be the one who crushes the evil one. I got a man with the help of the Lord, the promised one. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, 
Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. The Lord said to him, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin crouches at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they went up into the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, this punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Don't bother asking. Just eat your donut. I don't know what the mark of Cain is after the service. Don't ask. Um, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. This is the worst judgment imaginable. This is the description of hell, to be away from the presence of God. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now we hear about the, what happens to Cain after this. What happens to his family line, verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah, and Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's what happens to the line of Cain. What about the other line? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, that for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This then is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. We are the richest people on earth. We have the word of God. You may be seated. Family matters, we all know it. We know it intuitively, we know it in, in actual practice and experience. Fam family matters, what family you're in 
and shape you your whole life and the lives of those who come behind you. So Diane and I were traveling once and we encountered a, um, uh, a couple, they were from Australia, and uh, they began to tell us, as you might do, about their family, and then they pulled out their phone, as people do today, right, and began to show us pictures of, of their children. There were three um, children there, and they said, well, only one is, is our uh, natural child. And then they told us how they came by the other two um, children. They said, we were taking a trip in Australia, or going to a, another region, and somebody just knew we were going, and they said, I have family there. I have distant family. It's like a cousin, sisters, kids, or something. But, I, but I've heard some squirrely things about their situation. I just wonder when you're on the trip, if you would check in and, uh, and, and see how it's going there. And they were glad to do that. So when they went to that region, they said they went to the house and there they found the most appalling situation they'd ever experienced. They were sickened by the condition that those children were in. They're two very young uh, infant toddler children. They said their heads were flattened on one side because they spent so much of their day just lying on, on a hard surface. Um, said the house was just filthy. There was such a stench. Um, their diapers hadn't been um, changed in forever. When they when the woman moved to change the diaper of the little girl and she took the diaper off, her skin came off with it. When she went to change the diaper of the little boy, a roach ran out. And um, she grabbed those children and she fled from the house. What else could she do, right? But to rescue them from that horror. Their mother was there, by the way. She made no objection. And um, in fact, didn't inquire about the well-being of the children for another week. Um, and to make a long story short, she, this woman that we met, um, gained custody of these children and she was raising them. And the picture showed us, you know, six, seven years later, these children were beautiful, cute, smiling, happy. They were in their school uniforms. They were going to an Episcopal day school. They, had a, they, they, they looked perfectly cared for, thriving, healthy. It matters what family you're in. It matters. It makes all the difference. So what happens in the Bible is in Genesis 4, the story of God's creation bifurcates into two families. You remember? The other pastors taught that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made them male and female, um, didn't he? And that... Um, God uh, made them for marriage. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And, um, and he told them um, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with those who know me and love me. But Adam and Eve, our first parents, they rebelled against God. They walked away from God. And, uh, and the consequence was um, that they were dismissed. They were put outside uh, the garden. These two family lines are created. The seed of Satan and the seed uh, of the woman. The family of the woman will love God, follow God, and live for God, and the seed of the serpent will choose autonomy, right? And we're gonna see what those two family groups, we're gonna see where they go, what becomes of them, right here in Genesis chapter four. And what we see in Genesis chapter four is still true today. Here's the question we're gonna ask. What distinguishes the family of Cain and the family of Abel, then the family of Seth. What distinguishes those two families? And a much more personal question, and a much more important question, which family are you in? 
And which family will your children be in? And your grandchildren? And your great-grandchildren? And your great-great-grandchildren? Because the choice you make today is a choice not just for you. It's for your family for generations to come. You ready to go? Got a sermon outline? Here we go. What distinguishes the two families? And the first thing we see in this passage, what distinguishes Cain and Abel, we can see is, is how they relate to God, right? And, uh, and Abel relates to God by, um, by grace, having experienced God's gracious favor. But Abel's relationship to God is more transactional. It's more what we might call like world religion. Let me explain it um, to you. Um, Cain's relation to God is more uh, out of obligation, out of attempting to earn God's favor. Uh, Abel's response to God is out of gratitude for God's undeserved kindness. So Adam and Eve have two sons. Cain's the oldest and Abel. In fact, they may well have been twins. There's an indication in the passage uh, of that. But Cain is um, the oldest. Cain becomes a, a tiller of the soil, right? He raises crops. Um, Abel's uh, uh, um, animal husbandry. He's, uh, he, he has uh, sheep that he raises. And uh, in time, they give an offering um, to God. They bring it on. Isn't that fascinating? Very beginning of the Bible, the most fundamental truth of mankind is we recognize that we're not the creator. We are not God. We are not sovereign. And you honor the sovereign bringing the, the, your offering. And what we see is that the Bible says God was pleased with um, Abel's offering. He had regard for it, but he was not pleased by Cain's um, offering. And, uh, and why is that? Um, well, Abel gives from a deep response of gratitude. And Cain gives from a sense of obligation, right? His, his offering is transactional. He gives um, to get something. Um, now, how can you tell this? You say, Pastor, how can you tell this from this? And, and it's interesting. Scholars say Israelites reading this passage would have understood immediately. When it says that Abel gave uh, he gave of the very best. He gave the firstborn of his flock. He gave the fattest. He gave uh, an animal without blemish. He gave right away. It's one thing to, um, to give. Uh, suppose you're going to give for the year. You're going to give money for the year. You give it in January. Everything you're going to give before the whole rest of the year comes. It's another thing to give in December and decide, well, let me see what I get first. Um, it's the first fruits. It's an act of trust. It's an act of God gets the first. God gets the best. That's the spirit of, uh, of Abel's um, gift. It's over the top. It's a gift of love and trust. It's generous. It's sacrificial. It's heartfelt. Cain, however, I mean, he also brought an offering. They both brought offerings. Uh, the, the offering of the, of the animal is not better than the grain. That's not the point. Um, but this wasn't the first fruits. You see, you give an offering to God as gratitude for his favor or as a means of obtaining his favor, right? You give an offering because you cannot believe the lavishness of God to you and you respond with generosity and delight or you give an offering because you're supposed to. You give an offering because you want God to bless you and you don't want to be on his bad side. It's transactional. You want to get something, um, many, many people who serve, many, many people who go to church, many, many people who volunteer and serve and work do it out of obligation, do it out of uh, mere duty. Um, and God uh, has not regard for that um, offering. The Lord loves a cheerful 
um, giver. So how can you tell? Um, how can you tell the difference in here? Well, you can tell by the response, right? How does Cain act when, um, when God does not have regard for his offering? What's his response? He's downcast. He's angry. He's resentful. He thought that what he had done was necessary. He met the mark. He did what he was supposed to do. It was necessary to satisfy God. He paid off God. He paid his debt to God. It's an Old Testament version of the parable of the prodigal son, right? A sullen, angry brother thinks he's paid for his father's favor, and his grace-besotted younger brother is dancing at the father's party because he has it, right? Parable of the prodigal son. Here, Cain is the older brother, angry, angry at his father because his father is not so impressed with his sacrifice. And, um, and uh, Abel is the younger brother who's received the mercy of God and he can't get over it. You know, I, I heard Tim Keller tell a story years ago. I've never forgotten it. Um, he tells a story of a, um, a king who sits in the court with his nobles surrounding them and people are bringing the king um, gifts and this dirt farmer poor as can be, approaches the king and he brings the gift of a carrot. Not exactly a wowser gift, you know. It's a carrot. And, uh, and yet the farmer brings it with such pride because it is genuinely like the largest and the best and the most grand carrot that's ever been created. And the farmer says, there's no way I could keep this for myself. There's no way I could sell this at the market. This is a carrot that's fit only for a king. And in humble gratitude, he brings it. And the king is so touched that he says uh, um, to you, he said, I grant 100 uh, acres of, of my prime land for uh, this great honor that you've shown me uh, by bringing uh, the carrot um, to me. Now, one of the nobles sitting there is thinking, so this is how the game is played. Um, the king gave that man a hundred acres of priceless land for a carrot. He goes and gets the best horse that can be found. The best horse, the best breeding. I mean, a majestic um, animal and he brings it to the king and he offers it up to the king with lavish words uh, for the king. And the king responds by saying, thank you. And this nobleman can't contain himself. He brought, he says to the king, that's it? That's it? Thank you? This farmer, this dirt poor farmer gave you a carrot and you gave him all this land. I give you this horse and I get... Thank you. And what does the king say? The king says, that farmer gave the carrot to me. You gave the horse to yourself. That's the difference right there. That's how the line of God's people, those who turn in humble submission to God, they don't, uh, God's, it's not a matter of transaction with God. It's not a matter of earning his favor. It's not a matter of living out of obligation. It's not a matter of doing for him. It's not a quid pro quo, so he'll do back for me, Right? And one of the ways you can tell is when people get angry at God, right? And people say, I'm so mad at God. Um, I did this, this, and this. And, uh, you know, I get a little taste of it. Sometimes uh, through the years, people write letters, the emails these days, 
Uh, and they might be critical. They might be critical of me. They might be critical of my preaching. They might be critical of the church, something, and they're expressing it. And listen, we take those, um, while sometimes it's a bitter pill, um, we take it as, uh, as a good thing. Um, somebody's trying to tell us something, we ought to listen, we ought to learn what we can. Um, even if their uh, tone or whatever is wrong, maybe their, um, maybe their message is um, got facts we ought to listen to and learn, right? But there's always one disqualifying thing that if it shows up in the letter, and I just got to tell you, not being pastors, you might not know how often this little line gets dropped in a letter. It goes something like this. You know, um, uh, I'm not the only one in the church who thinks this way. There's quite a few others who do too. And you might know that we're among the highest donors in the church. So what's the point? What was the point of their, don- uh, of their, of their generosity apparently? We have earned the right. We have earned our position. It's transactional, right? We've done for you, you owe for us, right? I used to hate it when I was a young man. I'd take people out to lunch from the church, and very often they were older, and they had greater means. And then when the check came, they'd always reach the snatch of the check, and I'd try to be quicker than them. And if I got the check, if I managed to pay for it, their face, the blood would drain out of their face. And then the first thing they'd instantly say to me is, I've got it next time. And I said, no, you don't. That's not the way it works. I want you to get used to the idea that God gives to you. It's not a quid pro quo. You'd never pay him back. You can't pay him back. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. And you're always the recipient. You're never the big donor. Got it? That's the difference. It's the way we relate um, to God. So which family are you? And those who try to earn God's favor, it's interesting, they don't get it. Those who go to God professing their complete unworthiness, they get his favor. Which family are you in? I'm not asking if you're in the good family or the bad one. I'm asking if you're in the, the bad family that runs to God for grace or the bad family that thinks you deserve God's kindness. That's all we got. There aren't good people and bad people. They're just messed up people who run to God and messed up people who won't. Or messed up people who won't realize how messed up they are. All right, second, what family in? Secondly, we can see and distinguish these two families is Cain's defiance. Cain's defiance. Cain manifests an arrogant defiance, self-reliance, a hardness. I mean, this is a fascinating. I mean, Cain gets angry about the offering and it's apparent that what he's about to do is not good. And you see this amazing thing in all the Bible. God goes to him and what? Before he does the deed, God warns him, right? God says, I see the future. I see what you're about to do. I see you're gonna kill your brother. Seven times this passage tells us that Abel is his brother his own brother. And even with the warning of God, Cain goes there anyway, right? You know, as one commentator said, Eve had to be talked into her sin. Cain won't even allow God to talk him out of it. God says to him, your sin is going to destroy you. It's like like an animal. It's like a, 
crouching at the door like something, like a snake, like a snake coiled outside the door. That's kind of a Florida thing, right? You can open your door and there can be an alligator there. You can open your door and there can be a snake there. You open the door and there's a snake there. You're cautious. You don't let it in. Cain, don't let it in. It'll destroy you. Cain does it anyway. This, this, this defiance, I mean, a warning from God. Um, the serpent who attacked Eve is crouched at the door, but Cain won't listen. And Cain kills his brother. His brother, not an enemy, not a stranger, his brother. And then God comes and inquires, where is your brother? And what does he do? He lies. And then truculently he says, what? What, am I supposed to know where my brother is? Am I in charge of my brother? Am I supposed to have regard for his well-being? What's the answer? Yes! Yes! Yes, you're the older brother. Yes! Um, But he... Not only does he do it, he won't confess, he won't repent, and then when he gets the punishment, he complains it's too great. Cain is a traitor to the kingdom of God. He murders his brother, he anguishes his parents, and he's only sorry for the result that falls upon him. He loses the presence of God. So what's the difference between the two families? Again, it's not one good family and one bad family. No, it's whether we'll succumb to our sin, whether we'll cover it and justify it, right? Cain covers his sin. He lies about his sin. He justifies his sin. It's not so bad. Imagine killing your brother and saying, it's not so bad. I don't deserve the punishment. What is the way of the people of God? They see their sin. God shows them their sin. And God might have warned us of our sin, and we do it anyway, right? But God softens our heart and we repent, and we say, it's me. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's one way you can tell that distinguishes the family, is whether you're soft-hearted, whether you see your own sin. Well, this is, this, is a, this is a work of God. You can tell that God is in you if you see your own sin, because it's very hard to see. It's not that, it's not that you don't have good vision to spot sin. You can, in your spouse. You're 2020, you're 2015, I don't know, x-ray vision. You got Superman vision with your spouse, with your in-laws, right? You, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. It's not that you're not a good spotter of sin, you see it everywhere. But do you see it in yourself? Um, you know, I mean, that's really the question. Do you know anybody who struggles to see their sin, their own sin? You do. You. One pastor said that when people come for marriage counseling, a husband and wife, if they come by themselves, they pretty much talk completely about the problems with their spouse. And so he'll often say to them, all right, what if I just concede? What if I concede that the problems in your relationship and your marriage are 80% them? 80% 80% them. So we got a pie here. 80% of the pie is them and their problems. I want you to live in, 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 in this time we have together, I want you to live in the 20% that's your problem. Tell me what you're doing wrong in your marriage. 
And he said, they can never do it. They can never live in that 20%. They run right back around. It's my spouse. It's them. I see it. If they changed. Um, Here's a mark of those who belong to God. God has given them the security of the gospel to know that they can admit their faults. They can see it and say, it's me. The old spiritual, it's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. Oh, it's me, oh Lord. Stand, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of, you know, that's why I like preaching on Saturday night when Glenn is here. I don't know if you know Glenn. He sits right on the center aisle. When I start singing, he sings with me. <laughs> Last night, he just about stood up and took the rest of the song. Um, beautiful. That's what the family of Cain um, is defiant. I can remember, I hadn't thought of this in a long time, but preparing this um, sermon, I thought of almost juxtaposition one moment uh, years ago in ministry when I became aware of two women that uh, were pregnant. Both of them were not married. Um, They didn't want to be pregnant. They were ashamed of being pregnant. Um, They knew that having a baby they felt like would destroy their lives. And, um, and I spoke to the one, and, uh, and I pleaded with her, and I offered her every inducement I could, every care, every comfort, every provision, everything. Please give that baby life. Please give that baby life. And she said no. And to the other woman, um, we got together, and she was crushed, humiliated, embarrassed, um, afraid to face her family and everything else, afraid to face the church. And, um, and when we talked about what God would have her do, she said, I don't want to do that. I want to, I, want to, I want to put this away from me and act like it never happened and go on with my life. But if God says that I need to give this baby life, then I yield. I will yield to God. I cannot... Um, even begin to tell you the difference in those two stories going forward. That's what God's people say. Um, Not my will, thy will be done. What family are you in? What family are you in? Third, I want you to see uh, the the difference in trajectory of these two families. Um, There's a completely different trajectory What's the effect of rebellion against God? What I want you to see, it doesn't just impact you, it impacts your progeny for generations to come. When you choose to follow God or strike out on your own, you are making a multi-generational choice. We don't like that in America. I choose for myself, it's me and myself, they choose for them. That's not the way it works. You're in a family, God puts you in a family. And, uh, and your choice will affect your family for generations to come. That's where the passage goes when you start in verse 17. We hear what happened to Cain. After all this, what happens to Cain? Well, the Cain's family, they build a, uh, a, a they, they attempt to build a self-sufficient society. Cain feels like he's a murderer. He's going to be killed if he's out there in the open world. So he builds a community around them. He builds a city and he names the city after himself, right? 
And one of his family members, here's this picture of self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I can build, live in this world without him. And then arrogantly, they assume they can improve on God's design for marriage. One of Cain's offering is named Lamech. He takes two wives, and here we have polygamy break um, into the world, right? And then what do we read in verse 23 and 24 about this Lamech? Lamech says to his wives, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Look at where sin is gone. Cain revenges sevenfold. Lamech is seven. You know what the Bible says? A young man is actually a child. A child um, may have scratched me, but I murdered him in response. That's what's happened to the line of Cain. Brutal murders. Um, this is where it goes. This is the trajectory, far from God. You know, someone came along in the other line that said, if anyone harms you, does wrong to you, then you forgive them, right? In the exact same words of Lamech, seven times 70, right? You remember somebody said that? You forgive them. That's a distinct opposite. Cain succumbs to sin. Lamech exults in it. Cain is not his brother's keeper, nor is he his children's. He departed from the Lord and he took his whole family with him. It's a horror. His whole family, generation after generation after generation, and they get farther from God and they get farther from God. Why the genealogies here? Um, There's genealogies, I read them. Remember all those names I read? I don't know how to pronounce one of those names, but you guys didn't even know that, did you? I just make them up as I go along. Why are they even in there? Scholars show us that the seventh child from Adam through Cain was Lamech. He was brutal and boastful and a polygamist. The seventh child from Adam through Seth, well, that child was Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, once we learn of the line of Cain, Guess what? We learn of Adam and Eve having another child. His name was Seth. This is the end of the passage. And it says, and then Seth's people began to call on the name of the Lord. Cain's line, a little child wounded me and I murdered him. Seth's line, uh, the people began to call on the name of the Lord. What's the trajectory of your line? You know, I, I read... Uh, a book written by a brain surgeon um, recently, and he talked about doing this operation on this one particular man whose entire brain was um, eaten up with um, cancer. And when he went in just to take a biopsy, a a, a little pea-sized portion to biopsy, he said the veins around it started to bleed. And then the veins, um, as he went to cauterize them, as he went to stop the bleeding in in conventional ways that that a surgeon would do, the veins began to disintegrate and uh, pull back into the brain. And they've started to spread out in numbers and blood and hemorrhaging began to take place in the brain. And the surgeon described that in like three seconds, he totally lost control. I mean, these, the bleeding just spread everywhere. We're like right in front of his eyes, there it went. And the patient was getting away from him and ultimately he couldn't save that patient. That's what it looks like to read Genesis chapter four. That's what can happen in a family. You don't just choose for your kids, you choose for, 
for, the, for your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids and all the way down the line. Um, you're deciding. Listen, I remember a woman called me one time and she said, uh, listen, pastor, if you don't do something, I'm kicking my bum of a husband out. He's drunk on the couch. It's not the first time and I'm tired of it and I'm not putting up with it anymore. I'm sending him down to talk to you. Um, so he came in my office and he, um, and, uh, he was in a mess, he was a mess and, uh, how humiliating before the pastor he had to get up a couple times and go outside and vomit and then come back in and we talk some more. And over time he came to faith in Jesus and I'll never forget what he said. He said, my granddad was a drunk and my dad was a drunk and he said, and I've been a drunk but not anymore. He said, I'm starting a new line right here. That's an opportunity for people right in this room today. You could say, I don't know about the faith of my great grandparents or my grandparents or my parents, but right here, right now, a new line is gonna start. Moms and dads, this is what it's all about. Listen, why do you get married? What's the purpose of marriage? In our world, it's all about romance. It's all about uh, vacations in some island somewhere. I mean, it's all about the honeymoon because after that, it's not so great. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's all about the wedding, in fact, all the parties, all the, uh, all, all the stuff before the wedding, all the, that's what, you know, it's about all of that. No, it's actually about be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with people who know God and love God. It's right on the first page of the Bible. Fill the earth with people who know God and love God. That's the calling of your marriage. That's the calling of your life. That's what life is all about. This is the goal. This is the goal of your family. It's not the, you know, my goal is to try to bring my kids to Disney as often as possible. That's why we buy the pass, you know. No, the goal of life, get your kids into God's family. Um, A friend of mine Loves Jesus, his kids love Jesus, but one of his kids is not walking with Jesus. And uh, he had a health scare recently that made him think, I don't know how long I'm gonna live. And so he wrote to that um, one child and he said, when I go to heaven, son, he said, when I go to heaven, I don't want you just to be a sweet memory. Because I enjoy eternal life with your siblings. I don't want you just to be a memory for us. I want you to be there right? Isn't this your longing? Isn't this what we want? I read a story about um, a a Marine, Carl Marlantis, and uh, 23 years old, he's in Vietnam. He's leading 40 Marines. Their assignment was to come out of this jungle and take this hill. The Air Force was going to bomb the hill before they, they, they tried to uh, ascend and, and, and really drive back and decimate the enemy before they came out of the jungle. The Air Force came in. They dropped the bombs on the wrong hill. So when his guys came up out of the, um, uh, out of the cover, uh, they were um, completely uh, in the midst of uh, machine gun fire and mortars raining down on top of them. They're all hunkered down behind trees and in holes in the ground. And there they are. They're stuck. They're getting chewed up. And uh, this is what Carl Melantis um, did. He said, if I didn't get up and lead, we'd get wiped out. I did a lot of things that day, but the one I'm most proud of is that I simply stood up in the middle of that flying metal and started up the hill. I ran forward up the steep hill, zigzagging for the bunker all by myself, hoping my soldiers wouldn't shoot me in the back. 
It's hard to zigzag while running uphill loaded down with ammunition and grenades. But then in the midst of this solo charge up the hill to take out the enemy, he suddenly saw movement in his peripheral vision. It was a Marine, he says, about 15 meters below me, zigzagging, falling, getting up, running again, and immediately behind him, the other 40 Marines in a long, ragged line came running up that hill behind me. Moms and dads, that's what you gotta do. Get up and run to Jesus. And you know what it'll feel like to you? Like you're running uphill the whole time, right? It'll feel like you're doing the worst job of parenting. It'll feel like you're doing the worst job of modeling the faith. But you know what? Weave, duck, bob, run, keep going. And you know what? In God's kindness and goodness, you'll look behind you and you know what you'll see? Your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. They'll be running up the hill too. They'll be running to Jesus too. Isn't that what you want? I want to go to heaven and meet my great-great-grandchildren. I want to have my grandchildren introduce them to me because we're all there at the feast. What family are you in? Your choice matters. Last then, how do you get in this family? Because none of us are good, so how do you get in? What separates the two families? It's the blood. Cain denied responsibility for the murder of his brother, but there was a witness. God says, the blood of your brother cries out to the ground from justice, right? Cain is far from God. God can't forgive Cain. It wouldn't be just. So how can anyone be forgiven? How can anyone be made right with God? Well, those in the family of Eve and Abel and Seth They depend on the blood for justice too because long after Cain killed his brother, our older brother came to be his brother and his sister's keeper. Jesus, the innocent, was killed by the seed of Cain, but his blood, the book of Hebrews, says speaks a better word. Do you know what gets us into the the family? The blood of Jesus. His blood cries out to the ground. If we stood before God for judgment, if God looked at us worthy of judgment, then our defender, Jesus, will stand there and say, no, 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 we demand justice. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and, what? Just to forgive us our sins. Why is it just for God to forgive our sins? Because of the blood of Jesus. He's paid for them. And God will say, no, he's one of mine. I've paid for his. The blood of Jesus cries a better cry. When I was in school, I was a preacher every week in a little town in Mississippi, Utica, Mississippi. And I remember a family in that church adopted a child, an old farmer fellow who went to that church said, I'll love that kid, I'll support that kid, I'll support my kids, but I don't think they should give uh, that kid our name. I don't appreciate that. Because if you haven't got our blood, you don't get the name. Well, guy was full of it. Um, But spiritually, I'll tell you this. If you want the family, you gotta have the blood. 
Run to Jesus. Want your children and children, your children and your children's children to be in God's family? Run to the blood. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we're not the good. We're not the faithful. We're just the recipients of grace, of mercy. And Lord, what we've tasted, we want it for our children. And we want it for their children. God, if there's anybody in this room right now that says, I'm a, I've not done this. I have not set my face to yield to you and to see my own sin and, and to depend on Jesus, then even right now, I mean, if you're in this room, this could be the day that changes your great-grandchildren's future. Run to Jesus. Don't bring him your goodness. You don't have any. Just bring him yourself. And he'll wrap his arms around you and he'll kiss you and he'll welcome you home. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for, for having mercy and grace on us and giving and, and inviting us into your eternal family. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.